4: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Our next story is on our 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant, and his friend and associate, Ely Parker, the first Native American appointed to a cabinet-level position in the United States history.
3: Grant came to the West first as a soldier. He was uh, went to West Point, and one of his first assignments he was sent out to Missouri, and then during the Mexican War, he was sent to fight in Mexico. When he was about to go, he was already engaged to a girl named Julia, whom he would marry, and she kept saying to him, you know, you're, you're going to be killed by the Indians, you're going to be killed by the wild Comanches. He said, don't worry about it, I'm all right. He wasn't afraid of the Indians, but when he got into Mexico, it was the very first time he saw people of Native American descent. And he is the first generation, eight generations of his family since the 1630s, he was the first one who had no encounter with Indians growing up. Everybody else in his family had been on some frontier moving from Massachusetts out to Ohio, so it at least encountered Indians. He saw the poorest of the poor in Mexico who were descendants of Indians and Native people themselves. And he said, this country is so beautiful and the mistreatment of these people who are at the bottom of society by the wealthy and the powerful is terrible. And that shook him deeply. He then later was assigned to California as a soldier after the Mexican War. And he said, here are the Indians. They were nicknamed the Digger Indians because they survived by gathering nuts and roots He said, they're used like beasts of burden by the the men seeking gold in the gold fields. He said, this is terrible. And he used to write again back home to his family, don't tell me about civilization. Don't tell me that the white man is bringing civilization to the Indians. The only civilization uh, that they ever brought uh, was smallpox and whiskey. You get a sense of right from the start, he had immense sympathy for them. In fact, he did a painting when he was a student at West Point and it's of an Indian woman and man trading. So we know from his letters and later in his memoirs, he must have had some innate sense of, these are good and decent people. He did not like war. So the thought that you would go and slaughter people that he felt had done nothing except be the original occupants of the land, as he said, he didn't like that. I think if he had been allowed to choose his own life for himself, he would have been a farmer and he would have stayed on the land in Ohio, and he loved animals. He never, ever, ever went hunting. He loathed hunting. Unlike the the children he was growing up with, he had a respect for nature. To me, it meant he was kind of had a more sympathetic view to creation and reality. Not normal to his time in question and maybe still not normal today. His best friend, Ely Parker, who was a Seneca Indian, he said there was something innately Indian about U.S. Grant. He's not like other Americans. He's definitely not like the men of his times. This man who's going to be known for these horrible battles in the Civil War had a kind of innate sympathy for nature and. a kind of Indian way about him. At least that's what Parker noticed about him. Parker was born in western New York. He's a Seneca. He was born on a, the Tanawanda Indian Reserve. And right from the start, he was just a remarkable student. He wanted to learn. He often told the story of, once he was riding with British soldiers, And they mocked him because he couldn't speak English. And he was so humiliated, he told his father, I want to learn. I want to master the English language. I want to learn everything. And so he was sent to local schools on his reserve run by a Baptist preacher. He went to local academies. He eventually had some college education and he read everything, absolutely everything. People who met him said, there's nothing you can mention that he doesn't know. He can converse on everything. He became a great writer. He became a great speaker, he loved uh, oratory, and uh, eventually he read law. He should have been able to sit for the bar exam in New York, but they told him he was an Indian, so no, you can't take the bar exam. But when his tribe was fighting in the Supreme Court to maintain their land on Tanawanda, he was the advisor to the tribe's lawyers, and he sat there in the Supreme Court giving them. Um, advice that helped the Seneca keep Tonawanda. He was, you know, he was, how shall we say it, he accepted like his, his whole tribe did. We know the world is changing, we'll do our part to be part of this American experience, so he's perfectly educated. But he loved his tribe, respected their traditions. He was so beloved by his tribe, he was elected leader of the Seneca when he was only 18. So he was an amazing person. He was so far ahead of a of the world he was living in where this idea would later be developing is that somehow to be an American, you have to wipe out all your indian or whatever your culture is. He used to say, no, you can be both. You can retain your traditions, but you can still be part of this new American experience. He, he himself, if he could have voted, he would have voted Democratic. He liked Stephen Douglas, who believed in settling the West, not looking back, uh, you know, letting slavery die and um, building a tremendous American civilization, all of us together out west. So he was a fascinating human being. But he needed to get a job, and his job was he became an engineer. And he worked on the canals in New York. Finally, he got a job right before the Civil War working for the U.S. Treasury. And he was the superintendent of all the lighthouses in the Great Lakes. And then right about in 1859, he gets a job building a custom house out in Galena, Illinois, and that's where it's going to meet U.S. Grant.
4: And you've been listening to Dr. Mary Stockwell tell the story of Ulysses S. Grant and Ely Parker. And Parker is the first Native American appointed to a cabinet-level position in United States history. And of course, Grant, who had these special, special feelings for American Indians identified with them. And if you know and hear more about Grant's life, you'll come to understand it. Go to Our American Stories and listen to this story of Ulysses Grant. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story here on Our American Story. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Ulysses S. Grant and Ely Parker, the first Native American appointed to a cabinet position. When we last left off, Ely Parker, a young man on the move, had been sent to build a U.S. customs house in Galena, Illinois, where you would meet U.S. Grant. Let's return to Dr. Mary Stockwell.
3: In 1859, if we looked at these two men not knowing what was coming, the success story was Parker, brilliantly educated, you know, helping to argue a case in the Supreme Court, an engineer with all these responsibilities. He was at the height of what you could be as an ambitious young American in the 1850s. Grant was a failure. Grant has fallen on hard times. He missed his family. They were living in Missouri, his wife and children. He starts to drink and he um, he has a parting of the ways with the army. He leaves the army, resigns, go back to Missouri. He fails at everything. The farm fails everything. Finally, his father, who's a very wealthy man, who had been a, a farmer and then a tanner, had a tannery and then he built this big leather business across the Midwest. He gives his son a job, just a clerk again, in a leather store in Galena. Something Grant hated, and that's where Parker meets him. Parker comes in to buy leather goods, and he's fascinated by this man who's about his same age, this man, Ulysses Grant. And that any time he goes in the store to buy something, Grant hides in the back room and waits till the customers are gone. While Parker waits to talk to him because he said, I like him, he's behaving more like he's Seneca, like he's Indian. Parker said white men love to talk and love to brag and love to say, hello, how are you? And <laughs> He said they never shut up. You don't have to be a loud mouth. You don't have to be gregarious. You must be stoic, calm, respectful, and slowly you get to know him and slowly Parker befriended Grant. Then the civil war begins and U.S. Grant eventually darts his way back into the army, becomes a general and Parker, was a Democrat, as soon as Lincoln is elected, loses his office because he's been working for the Buchanan administration, and he's not a Republican. He goes back home to Tonawanda and is just trying to farm. He tries and tries, let me in the army. He goes to everyone asking, let me serve. But even Seward says to him, oh, this is a white man's war, go back home and farm. But eventually, U.S. Grant helps him. He gets him a job because he has perfect English, perfect speaking, perfect writing, perfect penmanship. This is the time before anything typewritten, so your secretary must be able to write anything quickly in a perfect handwriting. You know, telegrams are beginning, but letters are still the main means of communication. U.S. Grant gets him a job working for another general, but when Grant's own secretaries are so miserable, and they can't clearly state what is happening you know writing the letters for grant they realize the man who's got the great penmanship the man who's really the most educated and genius is this young guy parker and they take him and they assign him to grant he's chosen because again of his ability to communicate his perfect handwriting and it's not like a secretary today where you dictate it it would be more like grant has to figure out what to say parker helps him say it helps him communicate with Washington, D.C. And after Vicksburg, Grant is the big general. Grant says, this is the man I need. You can often see drawings. Newspaper reporters would be drawing pictures at the time as they start to follow Grant coming from Vicksburg out to Tennessee, up to Virginia to finally fight Robert E. And you would always see Parker behind him in his uniform. And he would have an ink bottle tied to the buttons on his vest coat or his coat tied with a rope. He was always with him, always behind him, and uh, did a tremendous job. When they get to Appomattox, and Robert E. Lee is supposed to come in and sign surrender agreements, another secretary is so shaken, can't even hold the pen, and he turns to Parker and he says, you do it. So it's Parker who will do all the agreements, all the surrender. And and in fact, when Lee saw him standing there in his Union uniform, he became offended because he thought, oh, Grant has a, a freed slave or a free black working for him. Then he looked closer. He looks closer, he goes, no, he's, he's, he's an Indian. And he ran up to Parker and shook his hand. He said, you're you know, the, the only American in the room. And Parker scolded him a bit. He said, no, we're all Americans. We're all Americans. Parker often said too, that was a dramatic meeting. He said, the next day they had another meeting, Lee and Grant, like in an apple orchard. He said, that was a far more dramatic meeting. He said, I'm, I'm sitting there with my portable desk he is, I'm writing and writing. And he said, I wish someone would have painted that day. I really seemed to really more realize this was over. And it, he said, it's to see these two men, one who had been so famous in the Mexican War, Lee, the other, Grant, who had been really a failure as a soldier to see their lives flip upside down. Lee is now leading the ruined life, and Grant is at the height of his of popularity in the height of his fame. It was just almost unbelievable to sit there and to chronicle this in in the papers he was writing that would head back to Washington, D.C. When U.S. Grant is inaugurated president, he makes this strange comment in his first inaugural address. Everybody assumes he's gonna talk about the South, Let's not hate, let's get back together. But he also makes a strange comment. He said, the original occupants of the land, I'm in favor of anything that will help in their civilization and citizenship. And it's got this like tinny quality. Why is he talking about the Indians? He should only care about the South. People forget he's inaugurated in 1869. What did he do between 1865 and 1869? Well, that's when he was general of the army. And he looks west and he says, We're going to come up with an Indian policy that is humane. And he said, I, I do not want no more murdering, no more killing. He'd been a general in the Civil War when things like the Sand Creek Massacre occurred out in Colorado. And he said, This is terrible. You can't just murder people willy nilly. There's no, you must not massacre the Indians. We got to figure out a way to save them. And so, He turned to many people. He asked Sheridan to help him. Sheridan was just Civil War all over again, kill all the Indians. He turned to Sherman. Come on, give me some ideas. He turned to many generals. Finally, the person who helped him the most was Parker. Parker remains at his side. He now assigns him to go out west to sit in many of these Indian councils. And he says, just go out and listen to these people. Let's figure out a way we can live together in peace. The tribes out west were astounded when Grant's personal representative appears at all of these meetings. He's obviously Native American, he's Seneca, they're astounded. So over four years Grant and Parker come up with a policy, what should we do? He said well peace of course, it's often nicknamed the peace policy. The goal for both Grant and Parker was eventually all the Indians would become citizens of the United States. And Grant used to talk about then like the the blanket of the Constitution would rest on them and they would be, they would have all the rights of citizens of the United States. So when he made that strange statement, the original occupants of the land, he'd been thinking about this and studying it with Parker for four years. Now he's president, now he can implement his policy and he figures the person who can help me the most is Parker you know, he is what I would like all the Indians in the Far West to be. He's got his heritage and his culture, which he's proud of, but he also made the transition to a modern livelihood, and he's like the model of what I want everyone to be. Grant's only worry, he said, can I appoint this man, is he an American citizen? Is the Seneca Indian who's so brilliantly educated at my side, is he an American citizen? And he turned to his own Attorney General and he said, yes, because we read the Constitution, there's a line about Indians who do not pay taxes. They're not gonna be counted in congressional representation. And they said, well, my gosh, he's been working in New York. He's worked in Virginia. He's worked throughout the West. He's always paid taxes, obviously. He's an American citizen. That was the decision. And Grant was extremely popular at the time. And he was appointed the head Commissioner of Indian Affairs. I think it's a forgotten story to this day, a tremendous story in many ways.
4: And you've been listening to Dr. Mary Stockwell on the relationship between Ulysses S. Grant and Ely Parker, the first Native American appointed to a cabinet-level position in American history. That story continues here on Our American Story. OAS today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash OAS. BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash OAS.
3: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
4: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps>
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
4: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The
2: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry.
4: and the story of U.S. Grant and Ely Parker. When we last left off, Parker had become the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, becoming the first Native American to hold that position, and the first Native American to hold any cabinet-level position. And soon, both Grant and Parker would be thrust into the political turmoil of the day. Again, here's Dr. Mary Stockwell to continue the story.
3: You know, when I was in school, and I read it today, I've read it in every every recent biography that's come out on U.S. Grant, they always tell you the same thing. Grant had a peace policy in which he wanted peace with the Indians. And then they say, and he appointed Christian missionaries to run all the reservations in the West. And it failed because of the Sioux War and Custer and things like that. I discovered that was not true. None of that was true. He gets into office, he lays out this policy. They go, what we should do is the U.S. Army should be in charge of all the reservations. We're gonna get rid of all the private people. We're gonna get rid of private traders. All the corruption is going to end, and we'll watch over the soldiers that we appoint as superintendents. They'll, again, run reserves or run the trading posts. Grant wanted to do that because he said if the president appoints the army, Anybody gets out of line in the West, they can be court-martialed and thrown out of the way. The idea was, if the army protected the Indians from the onrush of settlers and railroads and immigrants coming their way, the Indians would have time, maybe a generation or two, to realize the buffalo are disappearing. They're gonna to have to come up with different livelihoods. And Grant and Parker hoped, you know, maybe, maybe they'll become ranchers. That would be something they could do, raise cattle or something like that. Yes, they would send doctors and teachers or whatever, but there was no sense that you're gonna wipe out their Indianness. But it's very clear when you go through the grant papers, you realize these two men know, had figured that soldiers were more honorable, soldiers could be dismissed if they disobeyed, and if soldiers are told you will protect these people, they would do it on pain of court-martial and being removed from the army. It works for a long time, at least for a year, year and a half it works. What these two men hadn't realized is the tremendous opposition that they would face. And they faced it from all kinds of people. Settlers out west thought Grant was nuts. The western newspapers said, why are you doing this? Tribes in places like Oklahoma, like the Cherokee, said, no, we don't want citizenship. Many in Congress didn't like it because they said, you've shifted the power you're taking power from us. We used to appoint everybody in the Indian Affairs world. It was political patronage. You know Who cares if they got rotten stuff because the people we appointed sold the good blankets, the good food, and pocketed a profit. They set up a thing called a Board of Indian Commissioners. They picked 10 wealthy philanthropic American men and they they say, you 10 men, you help us give us advice, audit what we're doing, and keep an eye on us, but you'll help us. America had gone through a weird revision of uh, their attitude towards wealth. Americans traditionally did not like wealth or wealthy people up through the Civil War. We thought it was corrupt. But in the Civil War, so many wealthy men, wealthy industrialists had helped the North. Now people respect businessmen as wise. This ten-man commission uh they are determined to destroy grant's indian policy they're led by a fellow named william welsh who was a merchant from philadelphia and he said this policy is terrible indians must never be citizens they're like second class almost children and how could grant appoint the savage seneca to run it we're going to do everything we can to destroy this policy and they do congress and this Board of Indian Commissioners stick a knife into Parker. If we can get rid of Parker, we can get rid of Grant's ideas. So what they do in the early part of 1871, William Welsh accuses Parker of pocketing a million-dollar contract out West. Parker is brought before a subcommittee in Congress. He's put on trial, a frightening trial where he has called all kinds of names, claims he's corrupt claims he's pocketing money for the Indians when he didn't Parker is finally exonerated but he 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 quits he resigns and in in the, in the army goes and that's the last true communication he ever has with Grant so he resigns in 1871 he goes back to New York he tries to find work he tries to just survive He sees Grant only one more time. When Grant is out of office and Grant's setting off on a world tour, Parker comes to meet him and he brings him the desk. He has saved the desk from the McLean courthouse where they signed the peace agreement in 1865. And he offers that to Grant. He never sees Grant again. Grant will later be sick and dying outside of Saratoga, New York, and it's like his summer home. Parker will try to come and meet him, but Grant's son really disliked him and he wouldn't let him near him, would never let him say goodbye to him. Grant, before he dies, writes his memoirs. He never ever discusses his Indian policy, which was in the beginning so creative. He never discusses it. The stories I told you at the beginning, those are all from his memoirs when he talks about the Indians and his sympathy. He never, never discusses it. Well, just walks away from the sadness and the disaster of it, and the wars, too, out west. The neat thing about Parker, Parker goes on to help write a book. He writes a book on the Iroquois. It's probably the first true study of an American Indian tribe that doesn't denigrate them. You know, that, oh, they're uncivilized, but it shows the Haudenosaunee, it shows the Iroquois Confederacy, the Seneca Nation, in a positive life. That's gonna be the beginning of getting American scholars to stop saying Indians are savages, aren't, you, aren't we happy that we crush them? And it gets us to respect them. And I should say, by 1924, all American Indians were given citizenship if they didn't already have it. That was because so many young Native Americans had fought in the First World War. It was a, it was a, a thank you to them. So Grant's vision that we're all one nation, that to be an American doesn't mean you're a descendant of the Puritans. It means you're here, you're on this great ship of state, you can be a mix of people, and it doesn't matter where your ancestors came from because we, are, we have these legal rights and we have an identity through the law. I think it reminds me of a, a poem of Walt Whitman used to write about it, A Song of Democracy, where he talks about all of us on this ship coming from all over the world uh, and, and together heading into the future as Americans. That to me is the great vision these two men had. So I think of Grant like Ulysses and this beautiful you know, story of the Odyssey where somehow Grant has this vision we'll all be together on some grand adventure. All of us, um, my ancestors who go back to the Puritans, all the Indian tribes, he welcomed my ancestors, poverty-stricken Catholic immigrants from Europe. He wanted the freedmen in the south Uh, the freed blacks to be part of it. Somehow we're all gonna be under the Constitution and that's what it is to be an American and we go forward together.
4: And a great job as always by Monty Montgomery on the production of the piece and the storytelling and a special thanks to Dr. Mary Stockwell on her contribution. Her book is Interrupted Odyssey, Ulysses S. Grant and the American Indians. Go to Amazon or The Usual Suspects and pick up a copy. And what a story. Grant had a peace policy, it turns out, but my goodness, putting the U.S. Army in charge, well, it seemed like a good idea, worked for a bit, but in the end proved to be disastrous. And In the end, nobody really wanted his policy. Even the Indians didn't want it. The story of U.S. Grant and Ely Parker, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And our next story comes to us from a man who is simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here regularly on Our American Stories. The Brooklyn Bridge represented the growth and might of the Industrial Age and the coming of age of the United States and its largest city. Here's the history guy with the story.
5: May 24th, 1883, one of the great marvels of the industrial age was open to the public for the very first time. A procession of 24 coaches, the first one of which carried U.S. President Chester Arthur and New York City Mayor Franklin Edson, crossed the 6016 foot suspension bridge, one and a half times longer than any suspension bridge that had been built to that time, across the East River between New York City on Manhattan Island and Brooklyn on Long Island. The headline of the New York Times that day read two great cities united, although the Times gave its relative opinion of those two great cities the next day when they mentioned that the residents of Brooklyn would be happy to avoid a sometimes difficult ferry ride, but the residents of New York City had no great cause for celebration, as not one in a thousand of them would ever find occasion to use the new structure. The carriage carrying President Arthur and Mayor Edson was not actually the first carriage to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. That event had occurred ten days earlier, and the honor of being the first to cross the bridge in a carriage went to Emily Warren Roebling, wife of the chief engineer. In her lap she carried a white rooster, which was supposed to represent victory. Mrs. Warren was said to be concerned that the bird might peck her or try to escape the carriage. The bird itself was said to have crowed the whole way and did not seem to appreciate the role it had to play in the spectacle. The purpose of the crossing was not merely to give Mrs. Roebling and her rooster the honor of being the first to cross the bridge, which she had played such a significant role in building, but also to test whether the horse's trotting would make the bridge wobble. The bridge didn't wobble, but New York City residents might not have been convinced as to how strong the bridge was until the following year when showman P.T. Barnum famously walked 21 elephants and 10 camels across it at the same time. But Mrs. Roebling's presence did represent some of the significant challenges that were associated with the construction of the great buildings of the 19th century. Mrs. Roebling's involvement, in fact, began with an accident. While proposals for a bridge across the East River between New York City and Brooklyn were made at least as early as 1800, the design that would become the bridge that opened in 1883 was the brainchild of German board civil engineer John Augustus Roebling. Roebling had built important but smaller suspension bridges in the United States, such as the 535 foot Delaware Aqueduct completed in 1849. Suspension bridges of this size were still relatively new, especially in the United States, and this project would be extraordinary, the New York Times noted. The art of building these airy structures was then in its infancy here, and Mr. John Roebling stood at the head of the engineers, who made it a study. Roebling had made a proposal for a bridge between New York City and Brooklyn in 1852. In 1867, the same year that another of his projects, the 1,642-foot Cincinnati Covington Bridge spanning the Ohio River was completed, the New York State Senate passed a bill that allowed the bridge to be built. A New York and Brooklyn Bridge Company was incorporated, authorizing the sale of five million dollars in public bonds to fund the bridge. By some accounts bribery was involved in the deal. Still, Roebling was appointed chief engineer and began perfecting the plan for construction construction in that era was done by hand, and as can still be true today, included a measure of risk. In a sign of the nature of the risks of the era, on June 18th, 1869, Roebling was surveying the location for the bridge when his foot was struck by a ferry. His foot was crushed, and several toes had to be amputated. He died 24 days later of tetanus. His death, the first of more than two dozen associated with the construction of the bridge, represented the risks of the time. It wasn't until 1924 that an effective tetanus vaccine was produced. It wasn't until 1928 that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, the first general-purpose antibiotic which could be used to treat tetanus. Roebling's death was a stark reminder that the Brooklyn Bridge was built at a time when virtually any injury could result in a likely life-threatening infection. After John Roebling's death, his 32-year-old son, Washington Augustus Roebling, was appointed chief engineer. A Civil War veteran who had built suspension bridges for the Union Army and played a significant role securing the defense of Little Round Top during the 1863 Battle of Gettysburg, Washington had been assistant chief engineer and after his father's death continued to improve the design. Among his designs were the two enormous caissons which would be used to create the foundation for the bridge's two towers. The caissons were massive airtight wooden boxes of some 17,000 square feet. They were constructed on land, floated to the necessary spot on the river, and sunk to the floor of the river. They were then filled with compressed air and workers would sit down into them, hand digging the riverbed until the caisson reached bedrock or on the New York side, compacted sand. The caisson would then be filled with concrete and become the foundation for the 900,000 ton suspension towers. It was cramped, uncomfortable and dangerous work. The risk showed in 1870 when the wooden structure within the Brooklyn caisson caught fire. Roebling was eventually forced to flood the caisson to put the fire out and it delayed construction for several months. But there were more risks, among them a particularly risk called caisson disease. The Brooklyn Bridge was not the first example of caisson disease. Doctors as far back as the 18th century had noticed the deadly form of rheumatism that occurred with workers who worked in pressurized environments. The illness was more clearly noted in 1871 among the workers working in caissons building the St. Louis Eads Bridge. Twelve men died from the not well-understood condition whose characteristic painful symptoms resulted in the name the bends. The cause was decompression sickness, a condition that is the result of dissolved gases coming out of solution into bubbles inside the body on depressurization. In 1873, the project physician, Andrew Smith, noted 112 cases of the illness among the caisson workers on the Brooklyn Bridge, eventually resulting in 14 fatalities. Smith coined the term caisson disease. Among those that contracted the condition was Washington Roebling, who frequently went into the caissons to supervise work. The painful condition left him incapacitated and forced to supervise construction from his bed. His wife, Emily, became his intermediary, relating his instructions to his assistants and reporting on the construction to him. She became an expert on bridge construction and materials and navigated the political waters of contracts and the board of trustees. She would later write to her son that, I have more brains, common sense, and know-how generally than have any two engineers, civil or uncivil. While she fought to maintain her husband's title as chief engineer, she is generally recognized to have been the de facto chief engineer of the project through its completion. Her experience represented the difficulty faced by women in the 19th century. At the bridge opening, speaker Abraham Stevens Hewitt described the bridge as an everlasting monument to the sacrificing devotion of a woman and her capacity for higher education from which she has been too long disbarred. But the role that resulted in her carrying the rooster across the bridge in her carriage also underlined the plight of the 112 men whom Dr. Smith had diagnosed with caisson sickness. The condition, today called decompression sickness, can be effectively prevented with careful decompression procedures. In 1890, an airlock was used during the construction of the Hudson River Tunnel, an innovation that would eventually virtually eliminate the condition that afflicted Washington Roebling for the rest of his life. But the completion of construction did not end the peculiar risks of the bridge. The structure, a symbol of a modern city, also demonstrated the problems of urbanization. The crowds coming to see the monument to modernism were huge, even at a toll of one penny for pedestrians. More than a million people paid to cross the bridge in the first six months that it was open. Perhaps the strangest consequence of building the Brooklyn Bridge is that the bridge has become symbolic of a very strange fraud characterized in the line, if you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you, in Brooklyn. The line is not merely hyperbole. It refers to a notorious con man named George C. Parker. According to the website New York City Walks, Parker would create fake documents and fake sales offices and bilk people by selling New York City landmarks, including once masquerading as Ulysses Grant's grandson and selling Grant's tomb. The selling point was the possibility for collecting tolls. While the bridge opened with tolls, the pedestrian tolls were repealed in 1891 and the vehicle tolls in 1911. Parker would purport to sell the right to operate tolls on the bridge, New York City Walks explains. His greatest con was selling the Brooklyn Bridge. Legend claimed that he sold it at least twice a week but he did sell it at least several times including at least once for $50,000. The new owner would discover that he was the victim of a con when the New York City police officers would stop the new owners from setting up toll booths in the middle of the bridge. While George Parker has sometimes been called the greatest con man that ever lived, he couldn't have been that great because he kept getting caught. On his third conviction, a judge sent him to New York's Sing Sing prison for life. The Brooklyn Bridge has come to be a symbol of the city. In their obituary for Emily Roebling, who died in 1903 and was eulogized recently in their series on people who were overlooked at the time of their death, the New York Times wrote, The Brooklyn Bridge would go on to become, at least according to lore, the most photographed structure in the world. A gateway to that shining city, as Thomas Wolf once described it, whose granite towers and thick steel cables have inspired countless artists, musicians, engineers, and architects. Still today, according to the Department of Transportation, more than 100,000 cars, 4,000 cyclists, and 10,000 pedestrians cross the bridge daily.
4: And great job as always by Greg Hengler on the production, a special thanks also to The History Guy. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. A monument to modernism, the gateway to the city. A million people paid to cross that bridge in its first year, but you can cross it for free today. One of only a few bridges in the city you can cross for free. And by all means, the next time you visit Manhattan, and cross over to the borough of Brooklyn on foot, walk over the Brooklyn Bridge, it's stunning. It's one of the most beautiful things you can do on your visit to one of the greatest cities in the world. The story of the Brooklyn Bridge, here on Our American Stories.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
0: podcast.